0: Just do it. Think different. We bring good things to life. Whether it's Nike, Apple, or General Electric, or even the locally family-owned grocery store or the international nonprofit ministry, organizations, small and large alike, seek to convey what they are all about through memorable slogans catchphrases, bite sized summaries of why we should stop our busy lives and instead pay attention to them. And within these different organizations, they all seek to rally around its leadership with a clear mission statement, a motivating vision of what we are doing and why we are doing it. After all, with so many people coming together with so many different opinions and ideas what are the chances that an organization will survive without a clear grasp of unified convictions what's the likelihood of an organization lasting over the long haul without having a clear understanding of where they are headed well one author defines a mission statement as this way Quote, a mission statement is in some ways an action-oriented vision statement, declaring the purpose an organization serves to its audience. That often includes a general description of the organization, its function, and its objectives. Ultimately, a mission statement is intended to clarify the what, the who, and the why of a company. Well, this is your first time gathering with us this morning at Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church, i want to reassure you that our mission is not like Apple or Nike. We're not trying to sell you a product. Alan doesn't have some goods he's gotten from Goodwill that he's going to sell for three times the price after the service. This is not a church that's trying to compete against other churches. We're not even a church that's trying to pull off a church pyramid scheme, you know, wanting visitors to like our brand of Christianity. And to market our name to other spiritual customers. Listen, I'm aware that some of you are here today and you're highly skeptical. To walk into a church out of some of the things you've experienced in church life takes a lot of courage, or maybe guilt by your mother. Either way, all of us have had bad church experiences. All of us have had times where church folks have hurt us in the past. Or maybe you've had legitimate questions about the Bible. And church folks have ignored or dismissed them. Instead, you felt like you were being sold a bill of goods, tricked and used. And again, the fact that you're even sitting in a church building this morning after all of this is nothing short of a miracle. Well, if that's you, I want to be as lovingly direct as I can be. We're not trying to be deceitful and manipulative, we're not trying to get you to volunteer for our cause or to give us a helping hand, as if our church is a Sunday lemonade stand for Jesus. Friends, that's not what we're about, because that's not what Jesus is ultimately about. So let me be crystal clear of who we are and what we are most excited about here at CCBC. Friends, we are a local church made up of repentant and forgiven sinners who are eagerly looking to a beautiful Savior and a powerful king who calls and cleanses each one of his adopted children. We are a spiritual family who worships a good shepherd, who knows his sheep each by name, and promises to keep us for all eternity. We are a body of believers bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, who exist to bear witness to what God is like through our lips and our lives as we live in this fallen and twisted world, just like everyone else. Now, do we do this perfectly? Absolutely not. But is this why we exist as a church? Without a doubt. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Ephesians 3, verses 10 to 12, that it is through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. You see, this is God's purpose. This is God's eternal purpose. This is God's unchanging plan. This is God's plan A of how he is going to show off his wisdom and his power to the universe. He is calling the people to himself by the power of the Holy Spirit, giving them eyes of faith to see and hearts of love to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. So who are these people? Who are these strange bunch of people God is calling to himself and setting apart for his good purposes? Who are these people that he is transforming Not behavioral modification, but from the inside out that bear witness to his saving grace. Who are these people who have been forgiven of their sins and have their confidence in the person and work of Jesus Christ? It's the church. The church of Jesus Christ. The true people of God. So if this is true... What should every local church prioritize in its ministry? Or put it this way, of all the things a church could be focused on, what must a church be focused on? You know, if a local church like Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church had a chart of the top 10 things that we were most focused on, what would make that top 10 list? And friends, what would make the highest priority on that list? What would make number one? Well, to answer that question, let's look to where God's truth can be found. If you have a copy of God's word, please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, if you're using the chair Bibles provided uh, in front of you or beside you, that will be found on page 559 and 560. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 11. This is God's word. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach. And so you believed. Two questions I want us to answer this morning in light of our passage. Really simple, but often misunderstood. Question number one, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Number two, why is the gospel of first importance? Why is the gospel of first importance? Number one, what is the gospel? You'll notice there in verse one, the word gospel shows up in our passage. Paul writes, now I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you. You see, the gospel means the good news. Not good ideas, not good vibes, not good choirs, not good moods. The gospel is the good news or glad tidings. It's, It's a message that brings great joy to those who realize their utter desperate need for it. And it is this good news that the apostle Paul, an apostle was an authoritative messenger, uh, one that was commissioned by Jesus himself. to preach this good news, that one day led Paul to the ancient city of Corinth. So if you would hold your place in 1 Corinthians 15, which you had to flip back to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 18. just a few books of the Bible back. Actually, just um, yeah, just a couple. Acts chapter 18. The book of Acts is really a history that covers 30-plus years of the early church. You get to see largely three massive journeys or missionary endeavors that Paul and his team would go on, and here is one that is during his second missionary journey. Acts chapter 18 is going to share with us what it was like when Paul showed up to this city and preached the good news, and a church was born much like the birth of a new church. Acts chapter 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. They were tent makers by trade. for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So you can flip back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul isn't saying that he's preaching the gospel to them for the first time. No, it's quite obvious as we just read this. This was not the first time they had heard the gospel. He Had shared the gospel with them years previously, back in Acts 18. And yet, Paul is saying here that this gospel they first heard from him is the same gospel years later that they needed to continue believing in. You see, the gospel is not something we hear, believe, and give an assent to one time in our life and just walk away from it. Kind of like a good memory of buying a new car when you were a teenager and then. Look back at it as kind of a nice relic to remember. No, the the gospel, the good news, is the fuel for a sinner's joy. The gospel is about Jesus being revealed as the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited prophet, priest, and king, the one who would come to sovereignly rule in his kingdom over all his enemies and save his people from their sins. In fact, Paul finds the gospel so important that he even takes time, like a good, helpful teacher, to write a summary statement of the gospel so there's no confusion. And he explains why its content is crucial for their faith and for our faith today as well. Look with me in verses 3 to 11. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So here's the content. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So if you want to know kind of a bite-sized summary or a kind of, you know, capture Kodak moment picture of what the gospel is, uh, Paul reveals to us the basic essential content of it. And then, like a good apologist would do, one who defends the faith, he gives us proof or evidence or confirmation to show us that the gospel is a historical fact. Paul wants these early Christians. And Paul would want Christians today to know that Christianity is not based off religious feelings, but it's based off of real historical facts. So notice here, verses 3 to 4, again, the content. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also receive, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. You know, Paul is in essence telling the Corinthians that the gospel you first believed in, the gospel you now believe in, is the gospel you need to continue believing in to hold fast to. And that gospel is first and foremost about a horrific and shameful death. And not just any death. Not to be disrespectful to anyone who has lost a loved one in death. But the death that we read about in 1 Corinthians was unlike any friend or family member we will ever lose in this life. You see, this was the death of one who committed no sin. And neither was deceit found in his mouth. This is none other than the death of Jesus. God's beloved Son, the one who existed in complete fellowship and endless joy for all eternity with the Father, the one who stepped down into human history and became a man. He took on flesh and bone just like us, yet he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin woman, thus inheriting a human nature like us, but not a sinful human nature like we have Jesus of Nazareth the son of a carpenter is and continues to be the eternal son of God John's gospel opens up with the first introduction of who Jesus is he calls him the word and he describes even how long the word has existed John chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word, the Word who always was and always will be God. Friends, the Jesus we speak about this morning on this Easter Sunday is the same Jesus we worship every Sunday, for that matter, is truly God and truly man. Philippians 2 tells us, though he was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. We read in Galatians 3, verse 13, why this death on the cross was such a shameful way to die. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. A curse. A cross, a Roman crucifixion, torture device. Back in the first century, to die on a cross was the death sentence of a rejected slave or a despised criminal. In fact, when you read the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 21, verse 23, to a Jew, to be hung on the cross was a sign of being cursed by God. It was a despicable death. It was a shameful death. To hang in agony before a mob of bystanders. To be tortured in utter humiliation as a spectacle outside the city gates. Friends, this was a death sentence deserved for the worst of sinners. And yet, this was the death sentence for the one who knew no sin. This was the death sentence for the Lord of glory. The one who causes demons to tremble. The one who can still a storm with a whisper. The one who can raise a dead man back to life with a word. This was the one who was crucified by the hands of evil men in this present evil age. You see, Jesus was arrested by hateful and deceived men who thought they were doing God a favor. These were men who were full of envy and jealousy towards Jesus' popularity among the Jewish people. And of all people, Judas Iscariot, not some dude out on the fringe, but his inner 12 disciples. One of them would accept 30 pieces of silver In exchange to turn his back on the Savior, he had once outwardly followed. Jesus was then unjustly accused with the charge of committing blasphemy and then put on trial as if he were a madman, a murderer, or a criminal, or a thief. And then when you thought it couldn't get any worse, he underwent the painful affliction of scourging, Jesus was scourged with a whip made of several leather straps embedded with bone and metal, and flogging was only the beginning of the Roman crucifixion. But then Matthew's gospel, because the gospels don't hide how gory, how bloody, how evil, how sinful this spectacle was. It's one of the reasons why I talk to skeptics all the time and say, you can reject the Christian message, but you can't reject how honest The Bible is about man's depravity. Friends, listen to Matthew's gospel of how the humiliation of Jesus would only increase from there. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, "'Hail, King of the Jews!' And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Friends, the physical pain and emotional agony that Jesus experienced was of greater gravity than any previous or future crucifixion the world Would ever witness. Jesus was hated, abused, mocked, and abandoned by sinful men. And friends, we should not discount any of that. But one of the things that Hollywood doesn't include in their popular sales in the movies about Jesus, they capture the gory scenes. They capture the Roman soldiers. They capture the hateful crowd. But friends, the events of the cross and the painful torture that Jesus experienced was not ultimately man and his plots to win the day. The rugged cross that Jesus hung on Was also the predetermined and predestined plan of God. We read of Peter declaring on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2 22 and 23, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And again, the apostles declared to the persecuted church in Jerusalem in Acts 4, verses 27 and 28, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You see, friends, lawless men may have physically tortured and watched Jesus die on a tree. But our Lord told his disciples that he willingly laid down his life for his sheep. No one took it from him. John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. This is the sound of our brave savior. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Friends, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus uttered words of prayer and agonizing and heart-wrenching terror. But never read these sections in the gospel thinking that Jesus was afraid of men. Jesus was not afraid that his disciples would betray him. Jesus was not afraid of Pontius Pilate. Jesus was not afraid of being whipped by soldiers. Jesus was not afraid of mockery and hateful words. Jesus was not ultimately afraid about the physical torture he would endure on the cross. Friends, when Jesus dropped tears of blood, when Jesus trembled in the Garden of Gethsemane, the terror he was afraid of was for the wrath of God that was coming upon him. You see the cup that Jesus held in his hand, proverbially, he was trembling because he was about to drink down the punishment for the sins of every wicked sinner that would ever turn to him. You see, Jesus, who knew no sin, willfully submitted to the will of God. He laid down his life as a ransom for many. You see, the cross shows us two things, God's immeasurable love for sinners and God's righteous indignation towards sinners. You see, sin brings about the curse of God's judgment. Friends, sin cannot go unpunished. Heaven does not look another way. There is no sweeping under the rug on the day of judgment. The writer of Hebrews tells us, without the shedding of blood... There is no forgiveness of sin. Someone had to die. A sacrifice had to be offered. But it had to be a perfect one. It had to be one who loved his heavenly father perfectly. And at the same time could love sinners perfectly. Jesus laid down his life that sinners may have life in him. Beloved, You might be sitting here today full of shame and guilt. You've been running from God for quite some time. I just want to give you a soft and encouraging road to run down with this invitation. Christ willingly laid down his life so much that he is more willing to forgive you then you are to come to him. Friends, if you know you are lost and undone, you are walking in darkness, you know you're not living a Christian life, you know you have believed your doubts more than the truth of God's word, come clean with those to God. You can't clear up your dirty conscience by doing good deeds You're not going to make your slate cleaner by showing up to church on Sunday on Easter of all things. Friends, the way you get a clear conscience, the way you get your sins forgiven is come to Jesus. Come to him. He stood in our place bearing the penalty we deserve. Crying out, my father, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? so that those who put their faith in him would have the assurance that God would never forsake us. Friends, he died and he rose again so that all of us who would turn from our sins and trust in him might have eternal life. But good news is never good news unless you first understand bad news, right? As Brother Allen prayed earlier, God is holy, holy, holy. And last time I checked, that's not describing any of us. We are sinful, sinful, sinful. We're not holy, holy, holy. If we were to step into heaven's presence, left in our own sin apart from the grace of God, heaven would shut the door and say, go right to hell. Because God cannot behold wickedness and take pleasure in it. You see, you will never savor the grace of God until you realize how miserable you are in your sin against him. Friends, we're not just a little bad and kind of off the mark and got a B plus in God's grade school. No, the Bible says that our hearts are deceitfully wicked. Our minds are blinded by the devil. Our ears are deaf to heaven's voice. Our desires are for the world and not of heaven. At our core, we despise God's law because we know we can't obey it. At best, we're idolaters in heart. We take pleasure in crafting an image of God in our minds that's not found in Scripture. And friends, what we all do is what we've learned from our youngest years. When we're caught in our sin, we hide. We run to the dark, full of shame and guilt, and we hide from God and others you see the bad news is that God is actually good and we are not and the only thing we deserve is God's eternal and righteous wrath you might be surprised or not surprised I've preached in churches in my life that I've said things like I've just said about God's righteous indignation towards sinners and I've heard things like this well that's not my God I wasn't taught that growing up. God hates the sin and not the sinner. God loves everyone unconditionally. Friends, take off that illogical helmet for a minute and put on your logical minds for a second. If God loves everyone unconditionally, then why does he command us to repent of our sins? Why does God summon us to turn from our sins or burn in hell. There is a condition. You cannot love sin and love Jesus all at the same. Choose this day whom you will serve. There is no forgiveness of sins if you do not first repent of those sins. Friends, when you're studying the attributes of God and God starts blowing your mind with how big and holy and righteous and beautiful he really is, you will start hearing people in the church say things like, well, my Bible study leader never taught us that. Well, then my advice to you is find a new Bible study leader. And if that's you, well, starting this Wednesday night, we're going to have an adult equipping class. And one portion of that class is a study of the attributes of God. Do you want to know who this God is that we speak about and sing about? We'll come on Wednesday nights at 6 p.m. that you'll be able to discover some more about what and who God is like. And friends, I want to encourage you, if, if you're not, you don't belong to a local church that is committed to opening up the Scriptures and teaching you the full counsel of God, the Old and New Testament, showing all of what God says about himself, then find another church. If you don't know where to go, I can give you some suggestions. You're more than welcome to attend here and follow the Lord as long as he would have you with us. Friends, a good word for all of us to chew on this morning, including your preacher who studies God's word. We should be suspicious of our thoughts about God until our thoughts have been formed by all of God's word. See, if you, make, you have to make sure your thoughts about God actually line up with what God says about himself anything less leads to the slippery slope of idolatry. You know, it's not uncommon for people in churches to rightly pray for revival. How many of you ever heard that phrase before, revival? Okay, there's a lot of bad teaching on it, but basically revival, in the right sense of the word, is when God's people see their need for God to pour out his Holy Spirit powerfully upon us. It's when God's people realize how desperate they are for God's power to work. And I think we should all pray for revival. I think we should pray for revival for other churches. I I think we should pray for revival in churches all across our land. But you and I should never expect revival to happen if the centrality of the cross is not at the forefront of the ministry. We should never expect the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sins if we're never talking about how heinous our sins are against God. Because friends, people will not worship the God of the Bible until the God of their pride is dethroned from their hearts. So when God gets much bigger, and we become much smaller. David Claude in his book, Sinners in the Hands of a Good God, writes this, when God has given revival in the past, it has generally been preceded and attended with preaching that sounded the depths of human sin and divine grace. During the first great awakening, Jonathan Edwards discovered that it was his sermons on the sovereignty and righteous wrath of God that seemed to do most to promote God's work among his hearers. Decades later, in the Second Great Awakening, that same truth was rediscovered by a new generation of preachers. We may be sure that if God chooses to send revival today, it will be both accompanied and encouraged by a greatly deepened awareness of his implacable hatred of sin and his astounding free love for sinners. These emphasis stand in complete contradiction not only to the spirit of liberal Christianity, but also to most of what passes for evangelicalism in which the love of God Is so sentimentalized as to be utterly devalued. Yet without these emphasis, the gospel is not rightly known. Well, Paul doesn't stop there with simply the death of Christ in his preaching of the cross, but he goes on to explain more of the essential content of the gospel. He says in verse 3 that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, if you read the rest of 1 Corinthians 15, and I would encourage you to do that, if you've never read this long chapter in Paul's letter, you'll see Paul lay out various reasons and arguments, kind of a logical conclusion to why you must believe the visible, audible, bodily resurrection of the living and the dead. Uh, Paul's departure from Corinth Uh, like oftentimes when parents go away and the babysitter comes and doesn't pay attention to the kids the kids start doing weird stuff at the house that's what happened when Paul went away from Corinth the Corinthians were believing and doing all sorts of strange things and so Paul writes this long chapter on the resurrection to show that if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead well then Paul's out of a job He's got no message to preach, and that would include me, too. So I'm going to go back to the cleaning company, Dad. <laughs> Secondly, if Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, we're still dead in our sin. If Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, this is it. In- eat, drink, and be merry, and die. Life has no real substantial purpose. So what we see here, though, is Paul says, no, Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried. In other words, this wasn't a fluke death. This wasn't a fake death. This wasn't like a, oh, he almost died and resuscitated and hid in a bush somewhere. No, he was buried and that he was raised. Christ truly and really raised from the dead. But see, Paul knows his hearers. And by the power of the Spirit, the church today, 2,000 years later, would know. People are skeptical of this message. I mean, really? A dead man come to life? The Savior of the world? Truly God and truly man? This stuff sounds crazy, Pastor Blake. I know. It sounds crazy to all of us until God takes the crazy gene out of us and gives us the Holy Spirit, and we see life as it really is. That's why Paul goes on to talk about there were plenty of eyewitnesses that reported what they saw and what they heard. Look at verses 5 to 8. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. In the first section, we look at the content of the gospel. This next section is the confirmation of it. Uh, Far from Paul telling them to just take his word for it, uh, he mentions all the people. That had come into contact with our risen Lord. He speaks of the 12. Remember from earlier in Luke chapter 24? This was Jesus' kind of inner dream team. You know, they were such an all star uh, lineup that basically all of them doubted and wouldn't believe that Jesus actually did what he said he would do. They doubted him, they even denied him. And yet Jesus appeared right back to them peace 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 be with you they saw Jesus alive they physically touched him with their hands they heard his voice listen they sat down and had a Calico County breakfast maybe just fish and bread but I bet it was good Paul also mentions that over 500 believers had witnessed this resurrection, many of whom they could easily talk to, ask questions about what they saw and what they heard. He even mentions James, most likely the half-brother of Jesus, who John's gospel tells us did not even believe in him. And then Paul says, if you don't believe all the eyewitnesses, look at me. I was once a terrorist, a religious, nationalistic terrorist against Christianity. I approved of Christians being arrested. I approved of them being stoned and killed. He basically looks back at the Corinthians and said, how do you explain that? That I go from being one who tortured Christians and took pleasure in it And now I'm a teacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why in verse 10, he says, it's by the grace of God, I am what I am. Friends, have you ever asked that question? Christian, have you ever looked to heaven and said, God, why did you save me? Have you ever thought just for a moment what your life would be like today if he would have left you in your sins? I know I wouldn't be here. Even as a believer, I know the sins that cross my heart and my mind. Oh, God forbid that he were to ever show me what I would have been like if he would have never stopped me in my tracks. And friends, that isn't just for a preacher. That's not just for an apostle. That's for you. All of us would be the wickedest, the most shameful and despicable haters of God if he gave us over to our hearts and friends if you love god today it's because the grace of god has been shown to you if you share the good news with others today it's because that good news has been something to you today and friends if you've been sinned deeply against you have the ability to forgive even the deepest wounds because of how much you've been forgiven in christ friends that's the grace of god That's something to get up for every day. That's something to hold fast to. So that when someone looks at you and applauds or praises, the Lord just gives you a little tap. It's by the grace of God you are what you are. So that means the church has no place for people who boast in themselves. The church is a full of people who realize the only thing we have worth boasting about is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Oh, friends, what marvelous grace. Christianity was not some superstitious and religious belief that a group of Jewish men wanted to start a movement. Friends, if that's what would have happened, this thing would have ended really quick. Paul is just enning up the evidence. Look at the evidence. Look at the testimonies of eyewitnesses and look at my own life. But friends, we've talked about the content. We've talked about the confirmation. Why is Paul making this such a pressing matter? What makes the gospel so significant? Look at verse 3. He says, for I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. Kids, have you ever had your mom or dad say something like this? You can't go outside until you clean your room. You get, okay, someone, get an amen in the back. Yeah, kids, I mean, you can do a little. Well, our Baptist churches are still getting used to saying amens and stuff, but kids, if you want to roar it, I receive it. You can't go outside until you clean your room or you eat that broccoli I made for you. Well, aside from your parents trying to cramp your style, what your parents are most likely doing because they're good-willed are trying to teach you priorities at a young age. And friends, that's what we all need to be reminded of over and over again. First things must come first, which leads to that second and final question, why is the gospel of first importance? Why is the gospel of first importance? Well, there are really two overarching reasons I think Paul gives. Subpoint one, the gospel protects us from false teaching, self-deception, and worldly living. If you read all of 1 Corinthians, aside from Romans, it's the longest systematic letter Paul would write to a church in the New Testament. And listen, Corinth was a church that faced many of the same problems that even Baptist churches face today. There were divisions in the church over their favorite preachers. There was pride and quarreling and jealousy that had stained the culture of the church. There was sexual immorality. There were lawsuits in defrauding one another. There was confusion about how to love someone when your conscience bothered you. There was disorder on the Sunday morning gathering, and there was division even when they took the Lord's Supper. They were all messed up when it came to how to use your spiritual gifts, and of course, they started doubting that there ever really was a resurrection of the dead. This church needed massive reform. There were Christians there, They needed to be shepherded well. And you see, here we see at the very end of this letter, Paul is reminding them of the gospel they first believed, the gospel they now believe, and the gospel they need to continue believing in, because the gospel applies to our life more than just our justification before God. Husbands, If you want to know what true love is towards your wife, don't look to Hallmark or Hollywood. Look to Jesus. Wise, if you want to know what it's like to be humble and submissive under the authority God has put over you, look to Christ's submission to his heavenly Father. The gospel shapes our attitudes. It shapes our passions. It touches how we spend money. It touches how we do church. It touches how we deal with our enemies. Friends, the gospel is not the add-on to the Christian life. It's not the starting block to the Christian life. It is the Christian life. It's always good news. The gospel is not something we tack on to the end of the service like a cherry on top. You and I should be in these chairs every Sunday going, give me Jesus. Take me to the scriptures and take me to Calvary and take me to that open tomb and take me to the inheritance that awaits me. That's good news. That's what we need to hear because a healthy church is made up of members who know the gospel personally, who proclaim the gospel faithfully and defend the gospel by pointing people to the Bible. Friends, if you were stopped in the hallway after church today or in the workplace this week and a non-Christian asked you, what is the gospel? What would you tell them? Well, if you're not sure, you're in a church. Find someone who can help you articulate the good news because, friends, the gospel is the fuel for the life of the church. The gospel is the fuel for the life of a Christian. How important is the gospel to the future of a church? J.C. Ryle once said this Take away the gospel from a church, and that church is not worth preserving. A well without water, a scabbard without a sword, a steam engine without a fire, a ship without a compass and rudder, a watch without a mainspring, a stuffed carcass without life. All these are useless things. But there is nothing so useless as a church without the gospel. Friends, instead of focusing on how we can make America great again, let's focus more on how we as a church can keep the gospel as important again. Remember where your citizenship ultimately is. We're here temporarily but we will be with Christ forever. CCBC pray that we will be a church that never loses the primacy of the gospel. And the last and sub-point is number two, the gospel gives spiritual life to spiritually dead souls. Look at verses one and two. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, in which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Here Paul is basically giving us a a tool, if you will, to remind ourselves that salvation is both a past, present, and future reality. When God begins a good work in us, he sustains that work and he promises to keep us to the very end. That means as Christians, if someone asks you, are you saved? Well, here's the most theologically accurate answer. I was saved. I am saved. I'm being saved and I will be saved. That's a biblically carefully thoughtful Christian. Salvation is all of God's grace from start to finish. And there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And that's the name of Jesus. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved saved however we are called to not just believe that message but hold fast to it some of the corinthians apparently were in danger of walking away from the faith he addresses them as brothers but paul knew there were people in the corinthian church that he was thinking maybe they aren't truly born again they're unregenerate church members They were self-deceived. That's why Paul says, unless you believed in vain. Friends, that's why it's so important as families, you are teaching your children the gospel from as early as you can. Those of you who disciple someone, never stop teaching the gospel to them. But friends, the other side of the coin is that we should be calling ourselves to examine whether or not we are in the faith. Is there real fruit being shown from the faith we say that we have? And parents, this is from one dad to you. That's why we should never pressure our children into believing the gospel. If you pressure them, if you manipulate them, and you hastily affirm their salvation, you could be giving them a false assurance of their salvation. So my quick word to you is this. Proclaim the gospel repeatedly to your children. Celebrate and encourage any spiritual life you see in your kiddos, but be very cautious and slow to confidently affirm their salvation. Pray for them. Parenting is not a one and done in one weekend, as you already know, and discipling them is no different. And watch their life over the long haul friends, lasting fruit is far more important than an initial profession of faith. Lasting fruit is far more important than an initial profession of faith. Leon Morris once said, if men's grip of the gospel is such that they are not really trusting Christ, their belief is groundless and empty. They have no saving." So what is the highest priority for the life of a Christian? What is the highest priority in the life of a local church? For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the good news. And we thank you for your grace. Father, remind us of how far we have come, who we once were, who we could have been apart from your grace. And Lord, I pray you would renew our joy this morning as we sing together and partake of the Lord's Supper.